You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, in Matthew chapter 14, we have a continuation of the life and ministry of Jesus as recorded by Matthew, one of Jesus's disciples and ultimately an apostle. This is a very Jewish gospel. One of the reasons that we have so many quotations from the Old Testament found within this gospel. It has a very Jewish background. And Jesus here is presented as the Messiah and the bringer of peace and the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And in the Old Testament, the Messiah would bring prosperity. He would bring peace. He would be in many ways a miracle worker. And Jesus, of course, is seen in the Gospel of Matthew in that way. And here in Matthew chapter 14, he is at the height of his popularity in many ways. He has gained a huge following of people, but at the same time as he is popular with the common man, he is also growing to be increasingly despised by the religious leaders. Now, before we move on into seeing more of the life of Christ, we actually take a detour into the death of John the Baptist. It says in verse 1 of chapter 14 that at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, this Herod is not the Herod who killed the children in Bethlehem after the birth of Christ. This is likely his son who reigned over the region of Galilee during Jesus's adult life and was basically there by extension of the Roman government. Not a real king, but he loved to pretend to have real power and authority. And at this time, he hears about the fame of Jesus, verse 1. And he said to his servants in verse 2, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, that's an interesting statement. Basically, he hears of the life and ministry and power of Jesus, and he believes and attests it to the resurrected, resuscitated John the Baptist. He begins to believe that John the Baptist has come back from the dead. Now, what we're going to see here in the following verses is that this betrays a guilty conscience from Herod. The reason that he thought that John had come back from the dead is simply because he was responsible for John's death. And that guilt ultimately had begun to overcome his heart. And so when he hears of Jesus, his natural guilty reply is that this must be John the Baptist come back from the dead. Now let's read in verse 3 and following about how Herod put John to death. It says, For Herod, verse 3, had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So the situation is very simple. Herod has a brother named Philip, Philip has a wife named Herodias. Herod decides that he wants to have a relationship with Herodias. 
Herodias consents, and they go off together. And this is a very public kind of sin. Everybody knows that woman that he is now with actually is a woman who belongs to his brother Philip. And so it was a nationally known, regionally known sin. And so John the Baptist, boldly, as we would expect, begins to cry out against it. He uses it, I'm sure, as an example of great sin in that era and in that time and in that day. And he publicly rebukes it. And Herod and Herodias are upset at John for doing this. So Herod arrests John the Baptist. But he does that because of his anger at John pointing out his sin. But not only is Herod a slave to his lust and going after Herodias, he's also a slave to the fear of man. Because it tells us in verse 5 that he wanted to put John to death, but he feared the people because they held John to be a prophet. And so a slave to lust and a slave to the fear of man, Herod was a weak kind of man. In all of this, of course, we have to love the boldness of John the Baptist. It says in Proverbs 28 verse 1 that the righteous are bold as a lion. And of course, we would expect John to be bold because he was a man who was very influenced and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And as you study the Holy Spirit, you understand that one of the things that he produces in believers is a boldness that comes from God. And so John was a bold man, also a very truthful man. And so he preaches boldly, he proclaims the truth, which is something that the world should expect from the church, a bold proclamation of the truth. And so John proclaims it, and it leads to his persecution and arrest. Now in verse 6, it says that when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. Now, this wasn't just a simple innocent kind of dance. It was a sensually charged kind of dance. It pleased Herod. He didn't touch her. He didn't act out on his lust, but he was looking upon her and he was pleased with this sensuous kind of dance. So, verse 7, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And uh, more than likely, there was drunkenness and revelry and all of that happening along with this lust-filled, sensually charged dance. And so he, in the heat of the moment, just says one of the, the dumbest things he could say. And he says, you can have whatever you ask. And the other gospels tell us that he promised up to half of his kingdom. And it's not like he had a kingdom, but he was making big promises and basically playing the big shot at the moment. Basically, the lust in Herod's heart caused him to let go of his integrity, which he had obviously done long ago. And so in verse 8, prompted by her mother, Herodias, who is guilty and has been the subject of John's bold preaching, Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was very sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. 
he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. They honored John in his death, and they went and told Jesus. So the disciples of John actually go and take the body of the Baptist and bury him and honor him, and then they go and communicate it to Jesus that John, your cousin, your messenger, the prophet who came before you, he is dead. Jesus, of course, suffered in all points as we have suffered, and he here knows the pain now of losing someone that he loves to death. And so a sorrowful time in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 13, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Notice the weeping and the mourning of Jesus. He gets away at this news, but also Luke's gospel tells us that it was when he heard of Herod's assertion that he went to be alone and be by himself and get into that solitary place that when he heard that Herod was thinking that this was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And so Jesus went out to be alone and get away from this wicked and evil man. It's interesting. John had much to say to Herod, but Jesus had no word for Herod ever. Even in the crucifixion accounts, when he was brought before Herod, it tells us in Luke 23, verse 9, that as Herod questioned him, Jesus answered him nothing. He had absolutely nothing to say to this wicked man. And so Jesus hears this claim from Herod, and he withdraws from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot, from the towns. His popularity could not give him a moment of privacy. And when he went ashore, verse 14, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Just the compassionate love of Christ for the crowds. And so Jesus begins to heal their sick. And when it was evening, verse 15, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. It's interesting when you read the life and ministry of the disciples. It's such a contrast to the ministry of Jesus before the day of Pentecost. I mean, after the day of Pentecost, their heart begins to change. They begin to care for the multitudes and preach the gospel. But before Pentecost, before the pouring out of God's Spirit upon them, you would see Jesus with compassion, Jesus with mercy, Jesus with love and care and concern for others. But the disciples consistently wanted to send people away. And here this large crowd gathers and the disciples ask Jesus to send them away. They're out there in this desolate place. They don't know where the food is going to come from. And they realize there's a real problem at hand. And so they tell Jesus to send the people away into the surrounding villages and to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them in verse 16, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, what a tall order. As Jesus said this to his disciples, he basically looks at them and he says, Hey guys, 
you know, why don't you take responsibility? Why don't you give them something to eat? And I love the word of Christ into the lives of his disciples, telling them to do something that he knew full well that they had no strength to do in their own capacity. And so I think Jesus wanted them to seize the opportunity for one, and I think he longs for the same for us today. He looks at the world that we live in, the communities that we live in, and, and he looks at us and says, seize the opportunity. Don't wait for someone else. Don't ask me to send them away. Seize the opportunity that's in front of you. These are people that need to hear of Christ and need to know of Christ. Would you be the one to do the work? Would you be the one to reach these people? But I think he also wanted to put these men in a situation where they understood that they had deep need. They needed the power of Christ. They needed the ability of Christ in order to be able to do this thing. I think the Lord loves to put us in those places and those moments of desperation. And so they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. <laughs> you know, for all of these people, all of these thousands of people, and we're going to read in verse 21 that they were 5,000 men besides women and children. All of these thousands of people gathered together the guys get together and they say, well, Lord, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. We have nothing. I mean, it's obvious that this is not going to sustain this entire group. And in that, there's a beautiful picture of what we have to offer. A beautiful picture of, of the strength that is with us. I mean, in order to reach this world, you think of it, you think of the billions of people and you think, what is it that I have? Five loaves and two fish. I've got nothing. I've got no ability, no power, no might, no resources to be able to accomplish this task. And so notice the next word in verse 18, it says, he said, bring them here to me. Well, that word is such a timeless word. This is what true ministry, the true Christian life, really looks like. To bring all that we have, as little as it might be, our smallness of strength, our inability, and to come to Jesus and surrender it to him. To say, Lord, this is all that I have. And I know that there is an impossibility in this task, in an impossibility, in this commission, and in my strength and what I have to offer, it would be impossible for me to accomplish the task, but I will bring myself, I will bring them here to you. Then in verse 19, he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. And so they eat this wonderful meal together. This is, as I alluded to, an excellent form of ministry. Let Jesus take it. 
Let Jesus bless it. Let Jesus break it. Let Jesus multiply it right in front of us. And in this way, the little that we have can be a great and wonderful blessing in this world. And so bringing it to Christ. And the disciples, of course, were involved simply in delivering that which Christ had created and that which Christ had done. And it's important for us even today to continue to just give to people that which Christ gives to us. Nothing more, nothing less. And so this huge crowd, perhaps 15, 20,000 people strong, once you count the women and the children, is fed miraculously from the hand of Christ. And so bring the little that you have to this great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, pastoring a church, like I do, is a humbling work. You realize quite often your great lack and your insufficiency in and of yourself. You realize quite often how weak you are. And if you ever begin to, through pride, climb into that place where you feel like you've arrived or you feel like you have great power or great might or great strength, there's something coming in ministry that will then humble you once again. And it's so much better to operate in a place of humility than having to be humbled under the hand of God. But it's so wonderful to know that in the midst of all of that, there is this Jesus who is strong enough, powerful enough, mighty enough, and that as we bring our little to the Lord, he is able to multiply us and to strengthen us for the work. I can't tell you how many times the words have left my mouth and the ministry has gone forth and I have felt entirely inadequate for the task. And yet, even in those moments, those moments where I feel so weak, I've found so many different times and moments where the response of the people that I'm trying to minister to and feeling so weak towards, the response is overwhelming. It's as if the Lord himself is saying to me, look, son, it's not your strength, but it's my strength. It's not the power that you bring. It's the miraculous energy that I provide. And so here, this crowd of people receives miraculously from the Lord. Now, verse 22, it says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, when you read the other Gospels, John tells us that at this moment when Jesus fed the 5,000, the people began to want to forcibly take Jesus and cause him to be their king. And as I said, this is really the height of popularity for Jesus. And so he obviously doesn't want to be the kind of king that they want him to be, just someone to take care of all of their physical needs. No, Jesus wants to deal with the spiritual problem inside of the nation and the world at large. And so he makes his disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side of the lake. And he dismissed 
the crowds. And so a moment of privacy and getting away, he wanted to avoid this situation at all costs because really they didn't understand his ministry at all. They were looking at the physical and could not see the spiritual. And after he had dismissed the crowds, verse 23, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. The prayer life of Jesus is a wonderful study for a Christian to see the aloneness that he would experience with the Father and heading out into the wilderness and just getting alone with his heavenly Father. It tells us in Mark chapter 1 verse 45 that he would rise early a great while before daylight. It tells us in Luke chapter 5 verse 16 that it was often his practice to head out into the wilderness. And the disciples would emulate this to a degree. In Acts chapter 10, you see Peter on the rooftop of the house of a man named Simon the Tanner. And there he is alone on the rooftop, just having a moment in prayer. And I think it's important for us in our modern culture to experience much more of the discipline of prayer. Really, the Christian life is all about dependence, and there is no such thing as dependence without prayer. And so let this be your practice. Let this be your life. Stop for a moment with the emails and the phone calls and the distractions of the day and get alone with the Lord and spend time in his presence. This is what Jesus does. He goes up to the mountaintop by himself to pray. And as he's up there alone, it says in verse 24 that the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. You remember he had sent his disciples to cross by themselves, and so the a storm has risen up and is beating against the boat. And verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch, this was the 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. hour. He, in other words, sent his disciples and he waited through the first watch, six at night to nine at night, waited through the second watch, nine o'clock to midnight, waited through the third watch, midnight through 3 a.m., and at the fourth watch of the night, finally went down the mountain and miraculously walked on the sea to come to them, which we'll deal with in just a moment. But isn't it good to be reminded that the Lord the entire time had his disciples in his sight. He saw them. He saw their struggle. He saw what they were going through, what they were enduring, and he would not let them perish, but he would not come early. He would not come late. He would come on time, but so often his time is, you know, later than what we would ideally desire. And just as Jesus did with Lazarus, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed in the place where he was and waited for Lazarus's death and to work a miracle in Lazarus's life. So often the Lord will wait longer. He'll take his time. 
and we are so thankful that he does once he does but in the moment we sometimes wonder why he does not come now but of course perspective is not ours in that moment it belongs entirely to him and so on the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea but when his disciples saw him walking on the sea they were terrified you know they did not didn't know what they were seeing and they said it is a ghost and they cried out in fear you know as if the storm wasn't bad enough now they fear fear that they're seeing this ghost walking on the water but immediately verse 27 jesus spoke to them saying take heart it is i do not be afraid and one interesting study to go through throughout your bible is to hear the times that god speaks the lord speaks to his people a word of calm and says to them do not fear or do not be afraid that's just the constant condition of the heart of mankind we love to fear we love to worry about things we love to take burdens and responsibilities upon our shoulders that do not belong to us and so Jesus, once again, he calms his men. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered in verse 28. He said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, I've always wondered at this logic of Peter. They, they think it's a ghost. And this supposed ghost then says, don't worry, it's I. Do not be afraid. And Peter says, oh, okay, so you're claiming to be the Lord. If you're really the Lord and not a ghost, tell me to get out of the boat and walk to you. It just always seemed like suspect wisdom to me. Like, wouldn't an evil ghost want you to be deceived? I don't know. Anyways, Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Just an absolute miracle this man getting out of the boat walking to jesus and uh, only two men have ever done this jesus and peter walking on water peter was not a man to be stuck on human reasoning he was absolutely bold and reckless for god and you know he'll sink here in a moment but think of the faith that it took for him to to get out of that boat and come to jesus and certainly none of the other disciples did it but peter was willing but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible, Lord, save me. And, you know, of course, Peter's eyesight was, in verse 30, attracted to the wind and the waves. And, you know, for us, when our eyes get off of Christ and we begin to be distracted through the news and wars and disasters and stock markets and all of that, we can tend to get shifted from the vision of Christ that we need to have. And we begin to sink. We begin to lose heart. And so he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Just a little faith. Peter had enough faith to walk out, but his faith was small, and so he began to sink. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And as I said, things were coming to a head. They're starting to realize who this man is that they've been watching and following and doing ministry with. 
And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Remember the woman previously in chapter 9 who had touched the hem of his garment. The word of that had gotten out, and as many as touched it were made well. And so the glorious ministry of Christ. Follow him, trust him, have faith in him. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.